Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God. Today I'd like to go through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, it's in the New Testament, of course, and it was written by the Apostle Peter. Peter's first epistle was probably written somewhere around uh, uh, 63 AD, also known as 63 CE, common error. And I do intend to go through every scripture uh, in that particular book. The Apostle John placed Polycarp of Smyrna over uh, the Church of God in Asia Minor. And in his letter to the Philippians, Polycarp quotes uh, 1 Peter uh, 1 8, 2 11, 2 21, 2 22, 2 24, 3 9, and 4 47 as scripture. And the reason I mention that is it shows that the true Church of God knew that this was part of the New Testament from the beginning. Now, one reason to mention this, though, is that uh, uh, four to six decades later, some Latins came up with something called the Muratorium Canon. This is after Peter wrote this. And it basically did not include various books of the New Testament, including First Peter. And so that was a, a problem. Uh, this is one of the things, while a lot of times you've heard people say that uh, the Church of Rome gave the world the Bible. If you talk to Roman Catholics, that's what they tell you. Uh, we have a, a free book called Who Gave the World the Bible? And we explain why the Church of God knew the canon from the beginning and why we have proof that the Church of God had the canon from the beginning. And so the, the Roman Church did not give the world the Bible. They had trouble knowing what the books were for actually centuries, whereas those in the true Church of God knew the books from the beginning. And that's one of the reasons why I started off by explaining that in Polycarp's uh, letter to the Philippians, he repeatedly referred to First Peter, which meant he knew it was Scripture. And I'm just looking through my notes here that uh, not only was it the uh, Muratorian canon that didn't have it in there, uh, Origin of Alexandria mentioned that uh, uh, Second Peter, uh, and as well as James and John, etc., and Jude were considered contested writings at 250 A.D. And uh, around 320 uh, A.D., Eusebius, uh, the church historian, also said that the Greco-Romans didn't know about a bunch of books of the uh, New Testament. So they had some trouble knowing what the books of the Bible were, but in the Church of God, we've always known. And that's been our position. And again, this is documented in this free book. By the way, this book or any other book I hold up is available free online at the ccog.org website. That's www.ccog.org. Go to the literature tab under books and booklets. You can find it. It's free. It's documented. It's thick. It's got a lot of information. It's got a lot of scriptures, a lot of historical information that most people don't know, including scholars who wrote, write things about the canon. All right, that's all background introduction to go into uh, Peter's writings. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to follow along. I plan on using the New King James Version for just about everything. Those, sometimes when I quote uh, other literature, they may, other sources might use other translations and or uh, like, like the Old King James. So anyway, 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 1. Greetings to the elect pilgrims. Uh, I, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion 
or the Diaspora, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and uh, Bithynia. And my wife and I have actually been to several of these places. Now, the old uh, 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 Worldwide Church of God had an article by the late Dr. Herman Hay, who's somebody I knew, and I'd like to read what he said about this particular part of First Peter. To whom did Peter address his letters? These were not Gentiles. Peter was not the apostle to the Gentiles, but to the circumcision, uh, Galatians 2.8. Peter uh, was a chief apostle to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The word uh, strangers or pilgrims does not mean Gentiles. In its original Greek, it is peripetomos. It means a resident foreigner, literally an alien alongside. It refers not to Gentiles, but to non-Gentiles who dwelt among Gentiles as foreigners and aliens. Abraham, for example, was a pilgrim and stranger when he lived among the Gentiles in the land of ancient Canaan. Peter was addressing part of the lost ten tribes who dwelt among the Gentiles as aliens or strangers. I use the term diaspora because that's the term that's used these days. He was not writing primarily to the Jewish people. If so, he would not address them as strangers or pilgrims, for he himself was a Jew. Now notice the regions to which Peter addressed his letter. You might have to look at a Bible map to locate them. They are all in the northern half of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. These lay immediately west of uh, the Parthian Empire. Peter did not preach in these districts. Paul spent his years in Asia Minor in the, in the southern or the Greek half. Yea, so I have strived, said Paul, now they're citing uh, Romans 15, verse 20, to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. Paul did not preach in areas where Peter and others of the twelve apostles had carried the gospel. Nowhere in your New Testament can you find Paul preaching in Pontus or Cappadocia or Bithynia. These are regions that were under the jurisdiction of Peter and certain of the twelve other twelve apostles. Paul did spread the gospel in the provinces of Asia, but only in the southern half, in the districts around Ephesus. Paul was expressly pro prohibited to preach in Nicaea, the northern district of the Roman province of Asia. Now, he's going to cite Acts uh, 16, verses 7 and 8. This would be the old King James. After they, that means Paul and his companions, were come to Mysia, or Mysia, depending on how you want to say it, Miesia, or Mysia, M-Y-S-I-A, okay. They essayed to go to Bithynia, but the spirit suffered permitted them not. And after passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. These were the regions which the lost sheep of the house of Israel dwelt as strangers among the Gentiles. Paul did preach on his first uh, journey in southern Galatia in the cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, according to Acts chapter 14. But nowhere in the New Testament do you find Paul journeying into northern Galatia, the area which Peter addresses his letters to the tribes of Israel. And we have more information about the identity of the tribes of Israel. Uh, you can go to the cogwriter.com website, that's C-O-G 
www.writer.com website. Uh, we have articles like uh, Anglo-America in Prophecy and the Lost Tribes of Israel. Now, continuing, let's now go to the second verse of uh, 1 Peter 1. Peter writes, To the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. The letter was to the elect, who in this case were primarily of Israelite origin, and these were to scattered Christians. God had the foreknowledge of those he would call. We recently did a couple of sermons about God's calling, which you should be able to find at uh, the channel that this was on. Now going to verse 3, 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are begotten again in this life so we can be born again in the resurrection. And, continuing in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Reward is reserved in heaven, but it is not heaven. The reward will come down from heaven to the earth, and you can read that in the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. So we see that Peter was writing Christians who were grieved by various trials. And you've probably been grieved by various trials. You may be being grieved by various trials right now. Now why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want to read something from the Old Tomorrow's World magazine regarding this. Notice, the trial of faith drives us closer to God. It's more precious than gold because under duress we build character when we stay steadfast. We experience many trials that are blessings. And they don't always feel that way, of course. For after trial is over, we are closer to God than before. We learn vital, important lessons from trials. In the face of trials, people have to pray more, fast more, study more, examine themselves. No wonder, the Bible says, the trial of your faith is more precious than gold. Now, verse 8, first chapter, first Peter. Whom, having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I'm going to go to John 20, verse 29. You may want to always keep a marker where I'm at First Peter, because I'm always going to be going back there in this sermon. Until it's over. Jesus said to him, Thomas... This is John 20, verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. And we see that Peter was talking to Christians who hadn't seen Jesus, and they believed. And that's like, hopefully you are. 
of this salvation, verse 10, of going back to 1 Peter, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace uh, which would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them was indicating, testified beforehand the suffering of Christ, the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed. Let's see, I've lost my spot. Oh, okay, there we go. That not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering to things which have now been reported uh, you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. And so you see, we get to see things that the ancient prophets and the angels want to understand, but they didn't. But we also have a booklet called The Mystery of God's Plan. Why did God create anything? Why did God make you? It goes into various things, various prophets wish to see. And there's another book that I'm going to hold up. I'll wait till I get to it. Uh, uh, regarding salvation and the prophets. But we'll do that later. Okay, let's go down to verse uh, 13 now. Of First uh, Peter 1. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts as in your ignorance. So yes, uh, we've got to be careful not to go back to things we shouldn't be a part of. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, I'm going to hold up a, a book that we have free. It's a fairly thick book. It's called uh, Hope of Salvation, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism. And it's available at the ccog.org website. It's fairly thick, full of scriptures and historical references, so you can understand why we in the Continuing Church of God are not Protestant and why Protestantism isn't what Protestants tend to think that it is. Uh, oops, I'm sorry, where did I do that sometimes? I put stuff stuff down. Okay, alright, the reason I went to this book is because I'm going to quote some parts of this book, and I have these in my notes, so I'll read them from my notes, but I copied them from the book. Now, where's the first, was the first written in the Bible to be holy because God is holy? Now, remember, Peter just wrote that in verse 16, 1 Peter 1. Well, it's in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, where God is talking about avoiding biblically unclean meat. The statement Peter quoted about being holy as God is holy is repeated only three other times in the Hebrew Bible. The first is Leviticus 19, 2 to 3, where it discusses the Sabbath. The second is Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8, where it teaches about not being involved with witchcraft and talks about you should keep God's statutes. Now, does your, teach, your church, your Protestant teach, that you're to be holy as God is? Your church might do so, but the reality is Protestant churches don't generally teach that a sign of being unholy would be to eat biblically unclean meat or to not keep the seventh-day Sabbath. 
Now the final time the expression be holy because God is holy occurs is in Leviticus 20 verses 25 to 26 where God explains about also explains about avoiding unclean animals and being holy. So what else could Peter have been talking about? What was Peter talking about? The only subject in the Old Testament about being holy have to do with unclean meat, Seventh-day Sabbath, the statutes of the law, including witchcraft. And notice that the context also says to avoid lusts. Lust is unlawful desire. And uh, unlawful desires such as eating things which are unlawful, such as biblically unclean meat. And by the way, Peter did not tell people to eat unclean meat after he had a vision in the book of Acts. When he wondered what it, he wondered what it meant and concluded it had to do about not calling uh, Gentiles common or unclean or any other person. Didn't that, it didn't, he didn't say, oh, this means we're supposed to eat unclean animals. And if you look through church history, by the way, and that is in this particular book and some of our other literature, you'll find out that early Christians did not think they should eat biblically unclean animals. Now you might be a Roman Catholic and say, yeah, but uh, you do it. Well, you do it according to Roman Catholic sources because over 100 years after Peter was uh, died or was killed, uh, uh, Bishop of Rome, Eleutherus, allegedly decided it was okay. But it certainly was not an original uh, practice. Uh, Roman Catholics have adopted a lot of things that were not part of the original church. And we have a book on that too, Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church. Um, if you think you are Catholic, or you should be some type of Catholic, um, are you the original type of Catholic, which was actually a Church of God type of Catholic? Again, this book and the others available at the ccog.org website. Uh, getting back to something in the uh, to this, let's go to First Thessalonians uh, four seven through eight. As far as uncleanliness goes, Paul emphasized that Christians weren't supposed to be unclean nor be misled by those who didn't teach that. First Thessalonians four verses seven through eight: For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. So again, you see holiness, to be holy is tied to, that, to being not unclean. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that uh, you're not supposed to be involved with uh, unclean animals. It's an abomination. We're supposed to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. And that's in Leviticus 20, verses 25. 26. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And you say, no, but all this unclean stuff was, was gone uh, by this time. No, it wasn't. Paul and Peter wouldn't have written about it. But what about the Apostle John? Let's go to the last book, the last chapter of the last book, Revelation 22 of the Bible. Verse 11. To those who were unrepentant, the Apostle John was inspired to write, He was unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. 
He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. Okay. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. And uh, we are supposed to uh, be holy. Also in the book of Revelation, it, it talks about uh, unclean spirits like frogs, showing again unclean things still existed. Now as far as the... Be, notice that holy in Revelation 22 verse 11 was distinguished from filthy or the unclean. And in verse 15 of Revelation 22, John writes, uh, who don't make it, outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. In my view, those who believe that God's people are supposed to eat biblically unclean animals are accepting a lie. And, you know, dogs are also biblically unclean animals. So notice it's dogs are outside the, the city here. Now I want to go to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll get back to 1 Peter in a moment. Ephesians 5, starting verse 5, Paul wrote, for this you know that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man, who's an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. So again, we see throughout the New Testament warnings against being unclean. And uh, isn't eating biblically unclean foods a sign of disobedience? I think it is. And the Bible prohibits covetousness, and I think people are covetous when they're doing this. Now let's go back to First uh, Peter uh, 1, this time, verse 17. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time you have your stay here in fear, Conduct yourself properly, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your, your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope are not in politicians, uh, your country's military, economy, health system, whatever. God is in control. He has had a plan from before the foundation of the world and that plan includes you. I held this booklet up before. Mystery of God's plan. Why did God create anything? Why did God make you? If you want to know more about God's plan for you. Verse 22, First Peter 1. Since you've been purified, since you've, let me, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, so we're supposed to obey, through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. God is love. First uh, John four eighteen and four sixteen. And God has a plan for you based on love. Furthermore, He wants you to love one another. And I mentioned uh, that. I mean, that's something that's also mentioned in the book that I held up about the mystery of God's plan. 
verse 23. In New King James it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. But the literal standard translation says, Being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, uh, through a word of God, living and remaining throughout the age. You've been begotten, now will be born again at the resurrection. Now consider verse 24, I'll go back to the New King James, says, because all flesh is grass, and all the glory of a man is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Life doesn't last long. You might think it does, but it doesn't. Notice what happens to grass, to pets, your ancestors. Every, even material things that were never alive, uh, rusted or otherwise growed. The physical life that you have is going to end. Don't think that, oh, you've got to cling on to this, and it's going to save you somehow. You need to cling to God and His Word. The Word of the Lord endures forever. You need to understand that. Really understand it. And now, let's go to chapter 2 of uh, First Peter, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Now, do you really love the brethren enough to always do that? I hear reports that suggest that's not the case. Furthermore, unlike the Pharisees, we're not supposed to live hypocritically. But, verse 2, chapter 2, 1 Peter, As newborn babes desire the pure, word, pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We are supposed to grow spiritually, and that's in grace, character, and knowledge. Verse 4, Coming to him, that's Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Most rejected Jesus, and most have rejected his prophets throughout history. You can see that, for example, in Acts 7, verse 52. Verse 5 of First Peter 2. You also as living stones, 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 yes, I said that on purpose multiple times, are being built upon a spiritual house of holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundational rock, Matthew 16, verse 18, and we're supposed to be added to his spiritual house. I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, verses 19 through uh, 22. Now therefore, Ephesians 2, 19, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together, fitted together, you as one of the stones are part of this, fitted together to be part of God's house, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, will be part of the holy temple in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, yes, you have a role, an important role. 
Going back to uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 6 now. Therefore, it's also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief's cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame, even though people say bad things about us. Verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they are appointed. Now that also applies to most modern Christians, particularly the Laodiceans and those of uh, Sardis. Most will not believe that, Jesus, that Peter's words that were recorded in Acts 2, 17, 18 for the last days are applicable now, which has to do with dreams and prophets. But people won't do it. The uh, the Laodiceans and those of Sardis, etc., they won't do it. Verse 9, 1 Peter 2, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as I said, as far as the calling, we have a booklet, His God Calling You, and we also recently did a couple of sermons on being called, as you can watch. Verse 10. Who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, no matter how bad you've been, or how you think you've been, remember it says in James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that by your good works which they observe, glorify God in a day of visitation. We are sojourners. We're ambassadors to the kingdom of God. And we need to be careful in our conduct. We're supposed to be examples, not only now, but later. I want to read something that the old Worldwide Church of God published in the Good News magazine back in September of 1984. Quote, The Apostle Peter wrote that real Christians should have, quote, your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation, when God calls them. There is, therefore, a heavy responsibility on those whom God has called out of the unreal world to maintain their standards. You are supposed to maintain God's standards at all times. If you're being called now, your life should be a witness to others you come in contact with. The witness begins in this life and will be remembered in the age to come. And this is people in the church and out of the church. During the ages to come, those who are not called now are going to be resurrected. That's when they'll have their visitation. Therefore, hopefully, your example should encourage them to be converted. Uh, you know, your calling has, has many, many purposes. I mentioned prophets. Uh, prophets talk about God's plan of salvation, and many people don't understand it. I said I was going to refer to the prophets again. It's in the mystery. 
and we go into more depth than that particular mystery in this particular book, it's just on this subject, about God's plan of salvation. Well, God is calling some now. God will call all, either in this age or the age to come. This was a belief of the original Christian church. Yes, if you're Protestant, Roman Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox, early Christians believed something that your faiths tend not to teach anymore or believe anymore. And there's hundreds of scriptures that will back this up if you are willing to take a look and study. If you want to be diligent, which is something Peter, by the way, also encourages people to do. We'll get to that uh, uh, later. All right, back to First uh, Peter 2, this time verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For if this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put the silence to the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants for Christ. We need to be the right example. Verse 17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Be kind including what you write on the internet or talk to people over the telephone or whatever. Anyway, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, it's commendable before God. You know, we're supposed to imitate uh, Jesus, as Paul wrote in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, and we know Jesus suffered uh, improperly. I mean, he wasn't guilty of things, and he had to suffer anyway. Of course, he chose to do that for our sins, but it wasn't for his. 1 Peter 2, picking up in verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And hopefully you have. Hopefully you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. That's Psalm, he's not Psalm, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Verse 24, the end of 2 Peter 2. He, excuse me, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now why suffer? I held this book up, and I'm going to uh, go over this from the fourth chapter of that book. And why does God allow suffering? Peter's talked about it several times in this letter. But, uh, if Jesus came so we could have life and have it more abundantly, as it says in John 10.10, 10, why does God allow, uh, allow suffering? Because there's a purpose. It says in Lamentations uh, 
3 verse 33. Actually start with verse 31 here. For the Lord does not cast off forever through his though he causes grief yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Notice God does not grieve us willingly, afflict or grieve us willingly. He wants us to do well. You can see that in uh, 3 John verse 2. But seemingly bad things happen to good people, or to decent people. Uh, Jesus never sinned, but he suffered for us. It says, as it says in Hebrews 5.8, Though he was a son, he, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So why does God allow humans to suffer? There's a couple of reasons. One is punishment can be the result of our own sins to encourage us not to sin and to turn back to God. The Bible is also clear that God uh, punishes us less than our iniquities deserve. And the scriptures on that are in here. Now even people who believe at least Parts of the Bible kind of understand some of it. But there's another more complicated reason on the suffering. In Romans 8.20, Paul tells us that the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who was subjected to it in hope. And he also wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, and I'd like you to go there because I'm going to be there for a moment. And again, all this is in this book. Second uh, Corinthians 4, starting in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That is eternal glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The people are in the process of being refined, which includes grief and affliction. Yet there's hope. Those uh, not called in this age are refined one way, whereas those uh, uh, called in this age are being refined and purified more like silver and gold. Hence there are fiery trials in this age. I want to go to Hebrews 6, starting in verse 9. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of the better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name. Work and labor of love, God will not forget what you're doing. It's work and, remember, labor of love. In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish. They'll think, okay, I was good enough before, but that's okay. Now, still, it doesn't matter about suffering brethren or some other things. We don't want to deal with that. And who cares about Africa anyway or whatever? Don't get like that. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
we are to be patient and confident that God's way will result in better things. And um, in the book, I have uh, 1 Peter 3.17 uh, cited, but I'll get to that one later, so I won't, I won't uh, re read that again now. But I do want to read a few other passages in the book. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 3 through 4. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. I want to read Romans 8, 16 through 17, and this will be from the AFB. The Spirit itself bears witness conjointly with our own spirit, testifying that we are the children of God. Now, if we are children, we are also heirs, truly heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer together with Him, that we may be glorified together with Him. You know that Jesus has been glorified. Do you want to be glorified together with Him? Well, you have to endure. Verse 18, from New King James, For I consider, that Paul wrote, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory <clears throat> which shall be revealed in us. You might think you have it really bad, and maybe way worse than a bunch of others, and maybe everybody else in your mind are close to it. But notice that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now I'm going to go to uh, Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just the Father, the Son whom he delights. And yes, we have to face sometimes, or a lot of times, when we're going through tests and trials, that God loves us as a faithful Father and will bring us through, even though sometimes it seems like it's going to be very difficult. And let's go to Hebrews 12. I want to read quite a few verses here, starting at verse 5. Because, you know, we see this from uh, the uh, Old Testament, from Proverbs, what I just read. The New Testament, Hebrews 12, verse, starting verse 5. And if you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he also chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. We're to be children of God, says sons and daughters. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, Hebrews 12, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate, not sons. Verse 9, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirit and live, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Yeah, we don't like it, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering is allowed so people will be corrected, be trained, build character, and be better from it. Trials and problems help build faith, teach humility, teach us lessons, and can help us draw closer to God. While it can seem overwhelming now, God understands and He makes it possible that we can bear it. Jesus essentially taught 
Don't worry, take it one day at a time, Matthew 6. And what he has planned in the future is so much beyond what the physical sufferings of this will be in this life. Now I want to go to Hebrews 12, starting verse 1. I'm not sure why, but I chose the Jubilee Bible uh, translation for this. I'll read three verses here. Therefore, seeing we're compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, leaving behind all the weight of sin which surrounds us, let us run with patience the race that's set before us. So we have to run with patience. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, having been offered joy, endured, this says cross, cross just a stake, oh yeah, star of stake. Yeah, it actually has that here in the Jubilee despising the shame that was set at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied in your soul and faint. So don't be weary, don't give up. The suffering will end. You don't have to go there, we're going to go to the book of Nahum. Nahum uh, uh, 1, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you, and burst your bonds apart. Now, that was a prophecy related to Nineveh, but other scriptures confirm that suffering is going to stop. For example, Revelation 21, verse 4. And the yoke of Satan will be broken. You can see that in Isaiah and in Revelation. Now, suffering does not always result from our own actions, as we read in First, first Peter. And uh, what about children who suffer? Now, we know that there was at least one who was born blind, according to John 9, 3, so that the works of God should be revealed in him. But the other reason is so they build character as well. God has a plan for them. And uh, for those who uh, die prematurely, or even otherwise, who aren't called in this age, they will be resurrected, part of the second resurrection. I held up that we have a universal offer of salvation. So children who die will have an opportunity. Others who die who have not been called in this age will have an opportunity as well. Deuteronomy 32 verse 3 says God's work is perfect. Now in the New Testament, the book of James, James 1, starting verse 2, James writes, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith builds, produces patience. But let the patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Then you lacks wisdom. So let me ask God, who gives it all liberally and without reproach, and it'll be given to him. Now, suffering looks to be part of what we need to move toward perfection. Now that doesn't mean, by the way, we're supposed to torture ourselves intentionally, which a lot of Greco-Roman types have uh, uh, advocated. Now it says in Psalm 138, verse 8, that the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. God's working to perfect you. Now it says in uh, Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, we're to be perfect because the Father in heaven is perfect. Are we perfect now? No. Uh, 1 John 1, 8-10 says we still sin. Christians still sin. 
So does it mean we're not supposed to try to be perfect? No, we're still supposed to try. We're supposed to overcome. We can overcome with God's help. Tests and trials in this life. You know, in Second Corinthians chapter 12, Apostle Paul talked about that he he suffered, and he was going through something. He kept beseeching God to heal him. And here's what Paul wrote regarding something Jesus said. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So we're being perfected now with what we go through. Now let's go to chapter 3 of First Peter. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And by the way, you're supposed to be an example whether you're male or female. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward. He arranges the hair wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, it be the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. Hopefully you'll be a holy, you are a holy woman. Sub, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Obviously, Christian women should act and dress like holy women, uh, not one of the world's millions or billions of seductresses. Verse 7 of 1 uh, Peter 3. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers not be hindered. Verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, be kind, not returning evil for evil, nor or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from uh, speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Don't do evil. Be kind. Be courteous. Be nice. Verse 13. And he who is who excuse me. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And yes, we get threats and they try to trouble us all the time. A lot of critics but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope which is in you with meekness and fear. You should know the Bible and church doctrine well enough to answer many questions. Because that's what, what Peter is talking about. You know, Paul wrote about this in 2 Timothy 2, verses 15 and 16. He wrote, and this is from the old King James, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babbling, 
for they will increase more ungodliness. Now let's go back to uh, 1 Peter 3, picking up in verse 16. Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18, For Jesus, or for Christ, also suffered once for sins, the just and the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus suffered for the just and the unjust, and we seem to have to do that as well. Verse 19, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, and once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is the eight souls, were saved through water. The uh, Apostle Paul talked about death being like sleep in places like 1 Thessalonians 4.14. Now, many falsely claim that Jesus didn't really die, but he descended into Hades to preach to fallen angels. And uh, so he didn't really die. That's what the Church of Rome teaches happened on something called Holy uh, Saturday. So I've got something from a, a Roman Catholic source. This is from uh, the uh, Catholic uh, Register. What happened the first Holy Saturday here on earth? Jesus' disciples mourned his death. And in, in the sense it was a Sabbath day, they rested. Okay, What happened to Jesus when he died? Well, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, excuse me, according to this article says, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Scripture calls the abode of the death where Jesus went down to Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek because those are there are deprived of the vision of God. Such is the case for all the dead, whether evil or righteous, while they wait for their Redeemer. Jesus didn't descend into Hades to deliver them or to destroy uh, Hades, but to free the just who had gone before him. And they said this was the last phase of uh, Jesus' messianic uh, mission. That's what the Roman Catholics teach. But there's some things about Holy Saturday that they've simply get wrong. First of all, if Jesus didn't really die, he didn't really give his life, but he did. And Jesus said he'd be like Jonah three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And does anyone think that uh, Jonah was preaching? Uh, during that time. And there's nothing in the New Testament, by the way, that says uh, Jesus descended uh, into Hades to do this. Uh, plus, you know, humans, dead humans are dead. And actually, this doctrine seems to develop from something falsely called the Gospel of Peter. And uh, this idea about... Uh, Jesus, well, let me say one thing from Acts 2, verse 27. The Bible says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, that doesn't say that Jesus descended and preached. And the word translated Hades means the grave, the place of the dead. It's not the same play, word as Gehenna, which had a fire, 
It's also not the same word as tartar. Let me say this word correctly as best I can. Tartarosis, which is the place of restraint for fallen angels, which you read about in 2 Peter 2.4. The Bible never teaches that that's where Jesus went when he was executed. But that's what the Roman Catholics seem to believe. I even looked up in the Latin Vulgate of the Catholic Bible, and it has the word Tartarum, or Tartarusus, which is pretty clear, and it's only used at one, one time. It's not used anywhere else. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, I mentioned about the Gospel of Peter teaches it. I'm not going to quote the, the Gospel of Peter, but in verses 35 through 43, the Gospel of Peter uh, basically uh, says that uh, uh, Jesus went down, he made a proclamation to the fallen asleep, etc., and that the people uh, listened to there listened to him. This is a false source. Gospel of Peter, even the Church of Rome doesn't accept it anymore, but they did for a time. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to know which church knew what the Bible was, Partially because of accepting false books like the uh, Gospel of Peter and the, uh, uh, some other documents, the Church of Rome and the Greco-Roman churches actually started to incorporate false traditions. They thought they had scriptural support. And later when they realized those books were not valid, they didn't get rid of the traditions that they adopted. So I'll pull this book up because it explains what, how you can demonstrate whether or not the Church of God knew the books of the New Testament and what scholars, including Greco-Roman Protestant scholars, say the Church of Rome and the Greco and the Eastern Orthodox Church did not know. They were confused about the canon of Scripture for a very, very long time. And by the way, if you're Roman Catholic and you're watching this, and you think this has scriptural support, I'm going to quote from, uh, well, it's a translation of a quote from the late French Cardinal Jean Goulonnet Marie Danilou on whether or not the New Testament teaches this descent. The descent into Hades. This doctrine appears nowhere in the New Testament. And he, and he quotes another uh, Catholic scholar who backs this up. Anyway, Jesus was dead for three days and three nights. He emptied himself as a divinity upon his incarnation. That, read that in the New Testament, Philippians 2.7. Uh, he uh, did not receive this, that back until after he was resurrected. As far as when he preached the fallen angels, his idea uh, is claimed to come from First uh, Peter three eighteen through twenty. So let's uh, take a look at what uh, the old Worldwide Church of God published about that. This is from Good News Magazine, November of nineteen seventy five. Jesus Christ was the same God that walked and talked with Moses in the wilderness. The same I am who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Paul makes this plain. Now, you're quoting 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 1 through 4. I want you to know, brethren, that all of our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, into the sea, for they drank from the same spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. The same personage in the Godhead presided over the flood in Noah's day. Peter gives us the facts. For Christ 
also once suffered for his sins, for the just and the unjust, that he may bring us to God, being put to death of the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, which also he, Christ, went and preached the spirits into, unto the spirits of demons in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when, all, when once the long-suffering God waited from the days of Noah, while the ark was, uh, was preparing, wherein a few, that's eight souls, were saved in the water. The time frame of the descent was actually the time of Noah and the flood. This did not happen during the so-called crucifixion week. Now getting back to uh, uh, 1 Peter 3, this time verse 21. There's also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God and angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Baptism is a type that shows that we can be saved now, kind of like the Ark of Noah. But the reality is that salvation will come with the resurrection. I had somebody recently argue with me they shouldn't have to get baptized. It's bizarre. They, they're not Church of God. At least I don't think they are. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who suffered in the flesh also has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, party, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you don't run with them the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. Many speak evil of the continuing church of God basically through false accusations and distortions. Now verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they may be judged according to man, according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit. Now, the, the uh, old uh, World Radio Church of God and Radio Worldwide Church of God provided a an explanation about this part about preaching to the dead. So first, I'll start from something from the Worldwide Church of God. This is from uh, uh, Question and Answers, Good News, November 1976. What does Peter mean when he states the gospel is preached to dead, dead men, that they might be judged in the flesh but live in the spirit? Answer. Uh, they, they quote First uh, uh, Peter uh, 4, 5, and 6. I'm not going to read that again. It says, this refers to the time of the resurrection when those who are now dead will be made alive again. Other scriptures show that God's not a God of the dead, but the God of the living, those who live in him. Now, here's another question and answer. Some people say 1 Peter 4, 6 proves there's a purgatory. Would you explain this? Now, this is from the Radio Church of God, September 1984, in the good news. Excuse me, September 1964. If we understand who the dead are, and when they hear the gospel preached, immediately apparent there's no support for the false doctrine of purgatory in this verse. At the time 1 Peter was written, Christians have been living according to the gospel they heard preached. Some have lived out their lives and died and were buried in their graves awaiting the promised resurrection. Many of these have been martyred and killed and were dead because of their religion. 
prejudiced pagans had judged and sentenced them according to the flesh. Nevertheless, the faithful were assured they would be resurrected to live according to the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15. When did these dead people of the gospel preach to them? Why, when they were alive, of course. Those were preached in the past sense. Dead doesn't, don't receive any communication whatsoever. Church has been commissioned to preach this to the world. So they had basically two different versions of teachings in this. One is, one is Peter is talking about those who had already died who were uh, Christians. Uh, they had the gospel preached to. And the other is that others will be judged when they hear the gospel after the resurrection. All right, getting to verse 7 of First uh, Peter 4. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I want to go to Romans 13, verse 11. And do this knowing the time that now is time, it's high time to wake out of sleep. Now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not with revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Uh, okay, for example, if you're a smoker, don't have cigarettes around. <laughs> if you have a problem with alcohol, don't have alcohol around. <clears throat> First Peter 4, 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another, without grumbling. Love and be kind. Verse 10, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. So yes, we've still got fiery trials ahead of us. As though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part he is blaspheming, but on your part he's glorified. Severe persecution is coming. And you can see that, uh, for example, in book of Daniel, uh, chapter 11, verses 28 to 36. This is going to affect Philadelphian Christians. Verse 15 of 1 Peter 4. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. And we've got some people who seem to function sometimes as busybodies in other people's matters. You're supposed to work and not be a busybody. Verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. People wrongly speak badly of us, but we're not supposed to give up. Verse Peter 4, 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I was saying before, that there's different types of tests and trials for Christians versus non-Christians. And this is what Peter was referring to. This is something I also go to uh, in this booklet on the mystery of God's plan. So yes, we face 
uh, more tests and trials than most in the world do. Why? Because in this age we're being called. We're, developed character, we're to develop character in this life, and tests and trials are allowed to assist us with that, to help perfect us. Though it can be discouraging at times, we're not to give up. Verse 18. Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Others are not getting away with it, even though it might look like it, they are for now. Let's go to Galatians 6. Starting in verse 7, Apostle Paul wrote, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that we also, he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh corruption. But he who sows the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't lose heart. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. Yeah, we're supposed to do good despite what looks to be happening with others. Now the last verse, 1 Peter 4, 19. 1 Peter 4 is verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Yes, we will suffer. Now let's go to uh, the last chapter, chapter 5, starting verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now, the old Radio Church of God published something about this in Plain Truth of May of 1958. Jesus told Peter three times to feed the flock, which forms a secondary part of the great job which, which was given to the church to accomplish. Later, Peter repeated this great commission to those in his charge, feed the flock of God which is to you. Okay. Anyway, so Peter was told this by Jesus, and he's telling us, uh, the, the leader, church leadership to do it as well. How? Verse 3, 1 Peter 5, not as being lords over those who entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, I think those of you in North America realize that neither myself nor Deacon uh, Richard Close are going around trying to lord it over people. We're not expecting, we don't ask you to kiss our ring <laughs> or various other types of things. We're all, we're people. Anyway, verse 5, 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble which we all need to be doing. All, whether young or old, in the ministry, out of the ministry, male or female, need to practice humility. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That may take faith at times. But three times in the New Testament, it says that just 
who live by faith. And they actually get that from uh, Habakkuk. And I mentioned before, we have a free booklet on faith for those God has called and chosen. Available at ccog.org website. Verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So, others in the church are suffering as well. Let's go to James 4. So, how, what are we supposed to do about this? James 4, starting verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Although sometimes it takes longer than you think it will. Draw near to God, and he, that's God, will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Yes, submit to God, resist temptation, resist sin. Being double-minded shows a lack of faith, and we need to be humble. Now, 1 Peter 5.10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. We are supposed to endure and suffer for a while, but we are called to be perfected for eternal glory. Do you believe that? Can you live with that? In, do you live with that in mind? Now, verse 11, 1 Peter 5. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Verse 13. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to talk about this, last, this verse 13. I'm going to read something from the 1967 Ambassador Bible Correspondence, of course. 1 Peter 5, 13. Not at Rome, but at Babylon on Euphrates, where thousands of Jews still live, descended from those anciently carried there, captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Now I'm going to read from... Bengal's Noman commentary, 1 Peter 5.13, Babylon. This is Babylon of the Chaldeans, which abounded with Jews. I'm going to read this from Vincent's Word Studies. There is no reason to suppose, at the time this epistle was written, the city of Rome was currently known among Christians as Babylon. For the Church of Rome says that this proves Peter was in Rome, which it does not. Anyway, this commentary says, on the contrary, Wherever it is mentioned in the New Testament, with the single exception of the Apocalypse, and even there it's distinguished as Babylon the Great, so it doesn't say Babylon, it gets its usual name, Rome. So basically what this is saying is, Rome is mentioned as Rome throughout uh, the Bible, in the New Testament everywhere, except in the book of uh, Revelation, where it's referred to not just as Babylon, but Babylon the Great. This commentary also says, so far too from the Assyrian Babylon being practically deserted state to this date, there's very good ground to believe in the Jewish population of the city and the vicinity was very considerable. Alright, so we've gone through every verse now of First uh, Peter. It's, uh, again, this is part of our effort to go through uh, the Bible, particularly all the New Testament. You know, 
in First Peter, Peter tells us to rely on God, to understand that all flesh is grass, it's temporary, but God's got a plan, and a plan works, and it's eternal. We're not supposed to let the Satan, the world, the various lusts get in the way. We're to humble ourselves, submit to God, resist Satan, live humbly as true Christians, even though others may be against us. I was looking here for a book that I was going to hold up. Oh, there it is. I do have plan to do it. For more on living as a true Christian, we have a booklet, free booklet, online, ccog.org. Christians Ambassadors of the Kingdom of God. Scriptures in Peter and other parts of the Bible show us that this eternity is going to be far beyond anything we can imagine. Brethren, we need to have faith in God and in the Word of God and continue in faith. And that's what First Peter is all about. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.